This podcast is recorded in Australia, on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I wish to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and give thanks to the knowledge they have shared. Hello and welcome to Moments of Change. My name is Melanie Raymond and I'm a social designer based in Sydney, Australia and currently a director at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. Moments of Change is a podcast dedicated to exploring the moments that we learn from as we seek to design and cultivate positive social change. In this episode, I speak with the wonderfully inspiring Judah Amani, designer, changemaker and kick-ass founder of In-House Records. Described as dangerously positive, this pioneering record label runs with prisoners for prisoners, supporting people to recognise and develop their transferable skills and build new skills and positive experiences through music. Judah holds a deep commitment to creating tangible change for those who find themselves in challenging circumstances. And while he's no stranger to the music industry, it's his blending of years of experience and passion that has seen him utilise his design skills to support those experiencing homelessness, long-term unemployment, and now facing those challenges of those who experience the justice system. I met him whilst he was studying at the prestigious Royal College of Art in the Masters of Service Design, where now the student has become the teacher. In this episode, we speak about Judah's journey to this moment and the journey of setting up and scaling in-house records to the impressive program it is today. And of course, the challenges and opportunities that COVID has thrown their way. I hope you enjoy this episode of Moments of Change. Judah Amani, welcome to Moments of Change. Thank you. I feel welcomed. It's so wonderful to see you. We have, of course, spent some time together in person in London and fabulous to have you on the show today. I'm really excited about you sharing your journey with in-house records and, of course, yourself as a social designer. But let's kick off. How has your view of your purpose evolved over your career? I knew from a very early age, I think, issues around conflict. It's just I was quite an angry young boy and I didn't quite work out the best way to deploy that. But I was born in a country that was considered the axis of evil at one point in Tehran, uh, Iran, and spent some time in, in that country and seeing it shift from just some really internal conflict that then led to the regime that's there now. And then moved to London and then my parents divorced and my mother remarried and moved to Haifa in Israel. And then I went and spent time and in between Israel and Palestine. And by the time I was 17, 18, I had quite a big chip on my shoulder, I think. Partly because I I never really, by the time I got to like, yeah, early 20s, I hadn't really felt accepted anywhere. And then also I was seeing injustice in, in everywhere, especially growing up in 70s, 80s, London wasn't, wasn't as easy as I think it, it is now in terms of multicultural events. So there was a growing sense of, I'd really like to do something about being an outsider. 
I don't really know what that is. And as I mentioned earlier, I think I was quite angry. I, I, I don't think I know I was quite angry. And so I sought to try and rebalance that in a more selfish way. But it wasn't until, and, I, and even though I studied design at, product design at St. Martin's, it wasn't until probably a decade and a half later until I unlearned some rather unhealthy coping mechanisms in my life and grew up that I began to deploy some of those design skills to wanting to see if I can make a difference in a more positive way and try and explore how those that are on the outside can feel like they're on the inside because I somehow found a way through and knew that it was difficult. And that goes across society, political, economical, cultural, race, economical. So it, it started at an early age, although I wasn't quite sure about it. And then it kind of became more and more formed, the less of an idiot I was and the more of a human I was turning into. And then it, I guess it got crystallized by the time I got to the Royal College of Art, where I was pretty certain that design could play a part in making a difference. But I'd run out of my design tools and I'd literally just spent almost a decade working in homelessness thinking that I was going to dramatically change it with these design skills and, and just ended up doing more harm than good and housing people when they shouldn't, weren't ready to be housed, I think. And mm. yeah, just being that naive kind of person. By the time I got to the RCA, I think I was ready to engage by making a difference. Beautiful. And look, I, I think you implicitly and naturally create those safe spaces and those experiences that you've built into in-house records that I have seen. So for those who don't know what in-house records is, tell us a little bit about it and, and, and how it's come to be. Of course. So in-house records is an initiative set up primarily to want to create safer communities, less victims of crime, a reduction in reoffending meaningful opportunities for those leaving prison. It operates on two elements. There's education that takes place in prison, and then there's a record label that takes place outside of prison. And in many respects, the education that takes place in prison doesn't feel like education at all. It mm -hmm. uses functioning record label as a very soft curriculum. And so all the work required to keep a record label operating becomes the choice-based architecture that learners in prison are able to set up their projects on and get accreditation, whether that's mm. industry accreditation or nationally recognized accreditation. But yeah, so in-house education, record label, about change, and it's using creativity as a force for good. What I love about what you have developed is it really is that strength-based approach to building capabilities. I know that you centre around music, but it's a really clever way of identifying the strengths in people that might not necessarily be seen on the outside as, as professional sort of core competencies. And you've been really able to create an experience that connects with individuals about their strengths. Can you tell us a little bit more about that sort of Trojan horse approach that you're taking to create personal growth for people and create the recognition in themselves about those strengths. 100%. I know we were talking earlier that I see so much of the role of a designer within social impact around truly 
committing their time to understanding human behavior and not just understanding that behavior, but understanding why that behavior is taking place. When we see the UK that has prison population of 86,000, almost 52% of which never finished traditional school, mm. we know that actually academia isn't a safe space. So if we want to explore how we learn and what we learn, we need to create something that doesn't have the social or physical architecture of a classroom. We need to be able to focus on the strengths that the learner is able to bring to that space. So ironically, and I say ironically because it's not the most problematic part of in-house, it probably was the easiest part of in-house, was working, co-creating with the guys in jail, the kind of spaces and the core attributes that are important. But it became really clear that the guys had some fantastic communication skills, some fantastic accountability skills, some fantastic adaptability skills. They also had lots of pockets in those core competencies where those skills weren't obvious. So let's focus on what they have and their strengths and let's build up those particular core competencies because actually if you can speak well and you're accountable for your time and for your behavior and for your actions and you can mm. learn to deal well with change, there's a good opportunity that you can spiral across different networks and the wider your reach of networks, the more realistic chance that you have of being able to engage in some kind of mobility socially. So we created a, a competency recording program that enabled my staff to be able to track that and for learners to be able to see how they're developing in their communication. So wasn't just written communication, it's verbal communication, non-verbal communication, body language, visual communication. And we did that with Ernst & Young, one of the world's top three business consultants, and with the RCA still, the Royal College of Art. And we still use that, and that's, that becomes a bit of a resume when our learners leave jail. So they've, when they graduate, all of their development in those three core competencies actually then get captured into a bit of a CV along with their achievements. But this idea of focusing on the competencies is important because there was a theory in, I believe it was started in San Francisco, although I might be wrong, around recovery capital. I mean, it was really started with the idea of like opioids addiction. And why is it that some people might be addicted to a substance and it completely ruins their lives and somebody else might be heavily addicted to a substance and they're able to maintain the control as a CEO of, a, of an organization. You know, why, why can some do that and some can't? And the, the theory and research went into explore recovery capital, how there are these different elements of capital that a human being can draw upon, human capital being our technical skills, social capital being our communication, our accountability, our adaptability. Both of those happen both at school and in with the environment we grow up in. And then there's like something around structural capital, our understanding of frameworks, religious frameworks, political frameworks, that kind of thing. Those three combined together allows us to understand our earning potential. And all of them tell us how quickly we might recover from a setback in life. It became apparent that the majority of the guys that we were working with in prison just had very little social capital at all. Mm. So that was the idea of working around these core competencies whilst they'd have pockets of those strengths we wanted to jump on those pockets to be able to focus on 
what was strong or what was wrong, but then use that to be able to develop and build opportunities for getting stronger in communication, stronger in accountability and stronger in their desire to learn. And you've had some great results. Tell us a little bit about what that journey in terms of results has looked like and the replication and the scaling of the program now because of those positive results. Yeah. So the result, yeah, I, I pause because our outcomes are interesting to different stakeholders. Yeah. So actually what's an important result for the prisons we operate in is the fact that those who work with us their behavior improves in prison. Mm. It improves not because this is a rehabilitative program, but it's a program that provides choice. That's really important. Choice ultimately reminds us we're human when we can choose where we live, what we eat, what we wear. And if someone wants to decide to change, then that's a choice they make and they are engaging in their own personal rehabilitation. In the same way, if someone decides to freely give money to a good cause, that's charity. If they're told they have to give that money to that cause, then that's a tax. And I think the idea around rehabilitation is a a little bit cloudy, certainly in the UK. So the results that that are important to a jail is behaviour, is Mm. developing literacy, is any kind of accreditation. Those things are seen as like, really good and and we've been fortunate that those scores have been quite high for us so 428 percent increase in positive behavior after three months of working with us huge improvement in in literacy uh, specifically over the last 12 months as well Mm -hmm. since over lockdown but the outcomes on the outside are equally encouraging a a re-offending rate of less than one percent is important ultimately to the state where our reoffending rate wobbles around 60-odd percent, uh, which is also important. But we have to do more. We need, we, as in in-house, we need to do more. Mm-hmm. We must do more. And the more looks around how can we meaningfully engage with our graduates so that they do have proper opportunities. And that requires us to in- engage with the next phase of the work, which is now that we've got quite a few graduates released from prison how can we get a group of lawyers work partners to see what we see and to see the value that there that that is inherent within our graduates and the skills that they possess because we know that's there we've documented and recorded it and we know what they're capable of in a really positive way Mm. so there are some really good outcomes and really good results and that's great because that allows us to, to develop there's still a lot of work to do in terms of that. In response to the question around growth, and we talked about this earlier, but yeah, scale is problematic for in-house. And I think, I think it's problematic for social impact that, that requires human, human engagement and that's looking to change things for human because it's so dependent on uniform structures. And there just isn't uniform structures, certainly in the prison system, they're not. Uh, in education, there's not. Scale also requires appetite, and I'm not convinced the appetite is there. I know the problem is there. Mm. Look, it, it took us 12 months to find a vaccine. but it's if a clear you, driver. It's a clear driver, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> of risk. Yeah. Was yeah. If you could catch poverty 
if someone that was rich could suddenly become poor, like a, and you could catch it like a virus, you know, we'd probably have equally high drivers to want to come up with a solution for poverty. But we don't have one, and it's been there for many years. And there's socio-economic, political reasons and factors, and I know that's quite a chronic provocation, and I don't mean it in a trite way, but I say it to say to really emphasise that there are appetite is really difficult to lack of appetite is really difficult to creating scale as well. And so it's problematic because uniform structures aren't there. It's problematic because the appetite isn't truly there. And also, I think it's problematic because people aren't uniform. And so where in-house has naturally grown, if we can say that word, is through replicating, but replicating in nuanced ways, dependent on the circumstances that, it, that, that we find ourselves in. And actually, in the last month or two, we've been contacted by two pupil referral units. So these are schools where in the UK you would get sent to if you are failing mainstream education for whatever reason you would get sent to these pupil referral units which in the worst case scenario is like one stop on the tube before you go to prison mm. the the rate of people leaving PRUs to go to prison is quite high but what i'm really fascinated by is that pupil referral units have seen what we're doing and have recognized that actually we're delivering education in challenging circumstances might that be appropriate within a pupil referral unit? And so growth doesn't necessarily mean more prisons. It might mean how can we deploy education in really challenging circumstances? A lot of the education that we are curating is being formed and informed by a really strong neurodiverse community. Mm. And so we're, we're finding that because we're co-creating all the time, we're finding we're using less words, more images. We're finding that we're creating, again, more of the space for choice, which we knew before. So all of this to say that, that growing actually looks more like spreading than kind of traditional scale. Typical growth, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, when we were talking off air, you were sort of talking about that principle-led approach to how you scale or replicate. And so given that you've been operational for what a, a few years now, those principles, uh, you know, I would assume create the foundations from which and the values from, you know, from the foundations from which you can go into different environments to assess the conditions, to understand where, as you said previously, where power sits, where are the strengths of the, the different actors in that environment, what are the types of conditions that are conducive for this to succeed. Is there is there a very conscious process in in understanding, right, what are the strengths here? What are the conditions here? And how are we going to adapt from our principles and our values, these models? I mean, it, in 100% there is. And I think in a not wanting to sound simplistic, but really typical service design approach, Yeah, you kind of gather all the stakeholders that are occupying the problem space all their knowledge all their experience you kind of scoop it all together as some kind of 21st century dinner host bring everyone <laughs> around the table and then you get to see what are the assets that we've got to work with yeah and they can be dramatically different and sometimes there's also an acceptance to say 
actually the assets we got to work with probably aren't enough for us to do what we think we can do. Either it can, it's going to require intervention or it might require a complete different theory of change or we, we were talking earlier, but not for one second, I think, you know, in-house is, is an answer for every prison. It's something that has worked within prisons that it's been co-created in and other things will work prisons that, that have been co-created. It's the process of let's get a group of people that are all involved in this problem area and try and weave a golden thread through to what actually might look like positive outcomes for everyone. But I think that's a real strength to, to take away is your ability to dynamically adapt to those different environments and a real humility and awareness to, to sit back and understand the dynamics of the situations that you're going into. And I think, you know, I suspect that many models fall down because they, they don't do that. You know, they blindly go in and sort of cookie cutter approach it and then wonder why these particular programs that looked so good on the papers and, you know, the evidence review that someone requested and then suddenly it all falls over. So, you know, I think that is a, a wonderful position to take and an approach to take that will continue to allow you to adapt into different spaces or completely different contexts, as you say, with the school system. Judah, let's turn our attention to your moment of change that you wish to share with us today. And really, we were talking about, you know, a lot of social design and social impact is often at that sort of conceptual level where we're talking about, you know, systemic change and, and creating movements. But as you know too well, it's often in the really small moments where you're witnessing something change. So I'm sure you've had many of those moments across your career. What's something that sticks out to you when you've witnessed that change happen? I guess the thing that that sticks out today is the the first, well, actually it wasn't the first, the first time I walked into a prison, I was 17 and I was going into prison as part of a band. We were playing a song. (laughs) We were playing like, for like three or four songs. And it was in a prison that we actually now operate in. And I've never shared that with anyone. But I went in as a 17-year-old and it was in a prison in London. And we played a little mini concert. And then afterwards, we spoke to some of the people there. I don't even think I should have been allowed to go in because I was under 18. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they checked at the time. And going back to that same prison, probably 20, 30 years later, but as a 17-year-old sitting there speaking to someone after the gig, and I mean, I spoke to two people. One person knew more about my base and my amp and my setup and the manufacturers and the provenance of all of it that I did, and I was like blown away. And then he left. And then another person came in and sat down and told me his sad story. And the feeling of helplessness of, I really want to be part of helping this guy makes sense of his past and helping him make sense of his future. But I feel ridiculously inadequate. You know, I just played some songs. That was it. And I remember leaving that jail, just thinking there must be more that can be done because he was literally putting all the the components of his life there and just wanted to make sense of it. You know, one moment that comes to my mind right now is going back to that jail 30 odd years later. And sitting in the same space in that chapel where we had an open session for in-house to try and see, you know, who was interested. 
and it was oversubscribed by like 200%. And there were just like loads of people there. And the first person I spoke to just reminded me so much of that conversation 30 odd years ago where they were so keen to get on to in-house that they were just sharing everything that they'd experienced. And they knew, you know, you know when you're, you want to get like point across to someone that you want to like impress and you know that you're saying the wrong things. You know that. <laughs> Can't stop yourself. He was saying it. And as he was saying it, he was like, he knew it, this wasn't coming out well. He knew that it wasn't, this wasn't, but he would just, he just wanted to get all this stuff out there to like show, I'd really like to be part of this. And that feeling of knowing that, that there's something, there's something that I can point you towards that might help you make sense of your past. And it might even make help make you sense of the future. It was a moment of change suspended over 30 odd years, but it was, you know, incredibly significant, powerful. I had to stop and leave because I was like flooding up with tears when we had this conversation. So I was meant to be there for like an hour. There were other people, other staff members there. But after that one conversation, I went out, composed myself, came back again, and it was fine. And I rarely get like that, really. But that was, that really took me off guard. And that's when I came back in, I just suddenly, because I'd probably gone back to being a 17-year-old kid, I suddenly was like, oh my goodness, we've got a thing that can provide change. That's amazing. This is brilliant. It's not a blanket thing. It's not going to provide change for everyone, but at least I don't have to walk away from the prison this time thinking, you know, I feel so helpless. Beautiful. It's so powerful and obviously continues to drive everything that you do. I, it would be remiss of me to not ask you uh, a, a question in regards to what you've learnt about creating, I guess, the permissions or knocking people's doors down to enable these programs to be taken up in prisons because you are working in a really experimental way. You, I know you are continuing to iterate the, the program design and extend the, the support model. What have you learnt about the likes of working with big institution and government agencies in that their uptake for experimentation and the acceptance of that iterative approach? Yeah, so three things because these are the best and they're always helpful <laughs> to remember Indeed. things. One of them we touched on, but I think it's still worth going back to. So the first thing is that what I'm continuing to learn is that uniform structures aren't uniform. Mm. And even though they might appear like they're uniform, they can't be treated in that way. So they need to be treated like irregular. And that actually then takes away a lot of the dependency that might be on these uniform structures. They also need to, to be understood that they're not uniform because the appetite that they're built with isn't often the appetite that's actually there. So that first piece of learning, uniform structures aren't always uniform. And to really check the structure that or the structures that you're working with, to see, are they actually what they say they are? And even those kind of impervious structures are often probably, again, in my experience, the the bigger and the more impervious are the ones that actually are the, the less uniform and they have the most broken bureaucracy. Just as a caveat to that, that's not to say that people in those structures don't care. And I've met like the most golden hearted people that are committed to change working across those structures. But there is a resignation of they are 
they can only go as fast as the structure goes and the structure mm -hmm. isn't necessarily sure where it's going all the time especially when we look at punishment in this country in the uk where we do have a love affair with punishment ever since the Romans left. We, we've loved the stocks and the hangings and all of those kind of things, the public square environment. And so we've not really worked out how to, to move forward from punishing the body to punishing the soul. We're not really sure actually what's going on there. And therefore it makes change difficult. So the first thing is wrapped around, you know, uniform structures aren't always uniform. The second thing is around there is inherent creativity in everyone and of this i've become more and more convinced and it's a reason for equitable and this is more of a nudge to to, to the designers that are operating in social change there's there is a desire to see equitable co-creation not just co-creation that is user research or taking people's opinions but actually bringing people in as an equal and giving them the vote to say, what does this look like? Not the deciding vote, but still a significant vote, like everybody else that's there in that room, on that session, for that journey, to say, what will this look like? What does this shape look like? A real voice all the way. But yeah, so there's an inherent creativity amongst everybody that I've met. And I think it's one of the, I mean, people can can go on about oh we lost so much in the industrial revolution i think we did <laughs> and certainly in europe in the same way that you know prior to the industrial revolution people lived less sedentary lives and quite active lives and post-industrial revolution actually we've become less and less we've used that muscle less and less but it's inherent in all of us and now you know we assume someone's a creative because they go to an art college or they work for a, you know, an agency or a firm. And we defer to that kind of narrative as opposed to there's an inherent creativity that when switched on in every person allows us to not only see them thrive, but also to be really engaging co-creative participants in social change. So the second thing is inherent creativity. The first thing is around uniform structures and always uniform. And the third thing is interdependence. And more and more and more, I've been drawn to interdependence as a way of living, seeing the value that my community brings and the value I can bring to my community. So living in that kind of reliant upon each other, but also within how we operate and my practice. We talked off air about, or I was boring you off air, I should say. About, <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> uh, uh, pre-Socratic writer called Heraclitus that wrote a book about nature called On Nature. And he was writing about how everything is changing all the time. He talks about it being flux and he talks about nature finding a way through the flux. And actually, because of that, nature doesn't fear winter, you know, and actually neither should we, whether that means, you know, winter of our lives or just, you know, difficult circumstances, because there's a, there's an opportunity to work within harmony. And that interdependence I've seen at its best provide just such a, a great, I don't really like using the word resilient because I think it's one of those words that can become quite bankrupt. And so I'm not going to use that word, but it, but it creates a kind of a strength and a bond I've seen within the projects we've worked in and within the communities I'm part of, mm. where it can be really, you know, adopted interdependence is like the kind of 
the, the web that can hold these that can hold so much of these things together and how we create interdependence in our in the initiatives that we do how we can have you know majesty's prison information service the ministry of justice sony records and someone within prison and someone that's left prison actually all pulling in the right direction creates a ridiculously strong web that that is difficult to break so there are three things uniform structures aren't always uniform inherent creativity and interdependence across everything judah thanks for sharing those learnings and and for beautifully packaging those up for all of our listeners we're coming to the end of the show and I am really consciously aware that you've had to adapt to some really challenging situations due to COVID, respond to supporting prisoners in different ways. But as you look across the rest of the year, what's the one sort of wildly important goal that you're pursuing for this year moving forward with in-house records? Well, the, the one, thank you, by the way, so much. I've, I've really enjoyed every second of this. I mean, it's just brilliant catching up with you anyway, but this is even cooler. So in-house actually has a couple of different challenges. We've started releasing music now across all platforms. And that's, that's been a really important thing because from when we started in 2017, it was a promise that I intended to keep to the guys, which was, hey, listen, if you work with us, you can release your music. And now they're doing that. and That's fantastic. So how do we actually do the thing that, you know, we set up to in terms of the Trojan horse, it is, it's a record label. That's the last thing that we're actually building because everything else was like, you know, so important. So actually we're building a record label and that feels like quite a significant thing Yay! to do. Um, <laughs> it, it also feels like it's the easiest thing in many, in many respects, because there are so many experts around building that and there were less experts around building alternative education within the criminal justice system. So we're going around that the, that way, which is great. So that's, if I can have two things, that's, a, that's one massive thing that we're doing is how do we build a record label and how do we build a record label within an industry that, let's say, if, if we're going to be hugely honest, has, isn't the most moral of places? How do we build a record label in that industry that is still true to who we are, which is a record label for change? And it's important to stand with, with those kind of values, even amidst an industry that kind of anything goes, we still want it to be seen as, as different, not for the sake of it, but because we are. And then the second thing is we're seeing the, the growth of education within not just prisons, but in challenging circumstances, but also in correctional facilities in, in, in America and Connecticut. So we're now really looking at, do we need to explore more creative education across the board, outside of prisons, but actually within challenging circumstances that might be within schools, that might be within community groups, you know, where is that? So there are the two areas that the in-house is focusing on how to build a record label, of meaningful change within an industry that doesn't really mind so much. And how can we meaningfully create more education in challenging circumstances that is meeting the, the difficulties of the people that are placed within it? Wonderful. Well, that sounds some ambitious tasks ahead. I, I wish you all the very best to you and all of your wonderful team that you work with. I will be sure to share all of the, the links so that people can follow 
details about your podcasts, the artists, the new magazine that you've launched, all of the amazing things that you've been doing over a number of years so people can follow you and continue to support your journey and in-house records journey. Judah, thank you so much for joining us on Moments of Change. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you would like to be a part of the conversation or the community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack community and help shape future episodes, connect with other designers around the world and join the newsletter where you can win books and get updates. Subscribe to content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to any of our other podcasts, such as Getting Started in Design and Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion, Power of Ten with Andy Pillane, Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Prod Pod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Jay Husbrook, Moments of Change with myself, Melanie Raymond, and Talking Shop, our community podcast. <laughs>